a night at the opera. How cultured. Who's this weird wanker going on the stage? I was a brigadier in Seville, betrothed to my sweetheart Michaela, when I met Carmen. I'm very pleased for you. Well, I was a broadcaster and occasional entertainer when I met Carmen. Can you resist her? Oh, no, I can't. Irene. Yeah, okay. Why am I singing this opera stuff anyway? Well, that's from the opera Carmen, and Carmen Lynch is one of our two guests on this episode of the Dukey Radio Show. And the other guest, the lovely John Reynolds, I couldn't find an opera named John or Reynolds. Ah, right. So, Carmen, is she the funny one? Yes. And hey, he's the unky, unky one with that unky voice. Oh, he's hunky and has a hunky voice, yes. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, do you like that note then, Dookie? I love the note. I'll sing it again then for you. Go for it. Bam, 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 bam. studio sylvia silversmith hello everyone and marcia mcdonald yeah what up peeps Ooh, uh you sound a bit shell-shocked yeah i'm kind of uh swooning here you're swooning yeah i know i'm looking good today yeah no dookie yeah, yeah you know that's not why i'm swooning i don't swoon often this is true. I don't swoon often. And also, you're in the vagina business as well, so... Well, Duke, no, not that. My charm simply cannot make you move to the other side. I'm swooning over your guests this week, Dookie. I'm just the biggest disappointment of my life that I couldn't meet her in the studio. Where were you? I was at work. I was at work, Dookie. Have you heard of the phrase, pulling a sickie? Yeah, no, I know. I, ca- I could have, but uh, you've you've showed me the cushion that uh, had the honor of having her rear end on it, and I'm taking it from you. I'm going to have a bronze. You're going to bronze Carmen's cushion. I'm going to bronze her cushion, Dookie. You know, well, when we saw her in Edinburgh, I told her I loved her twice. In fact, actually, you said, I love you so hard. Oh, did I? Yeah, uh, see, you know, she's just, she's just a joy and a delight. You know what I mean? Mm. She's a joy and a delight. She's funny. She's hilarious. She's dark. And she seems like a nice person. And I think she's amazing. A thing of beauty and a Keats reference forever. 
Is it a Keats reference? Yes, a thing of beauty and a joy forever. Oh, is that Ke- oh, see, yes. now I'm just showing how plebby I am. Oh, give over. Dookie, I have to say, I was very sorry not to be here either. And where were you? Well, I was at work too, Dookie. Right. So, Haven't you heard of the phrase? Yeah, no more I know, the, Dookie. Oh, the Protestant work ethic. It's strong it's in you It's pretty two. strong in the two of us. Mm. And Dookie, the, your other guest who was on with Carmen, the, you said his name is John Reynolds. Yes. Now, I'm doing a little swoony swoony for him. Even though I didn't meet him. So am I. Lovely, lovely man. Isn't that voice, Dookie? I just heard a little bit of the recording and that that voice. Mm. Dookie, I don't think I can listen to the entire podcast when it's broadcast because I, too, love the wonderful and delicious Carmen, who is delicious. Mm. And his voice is just unsurpassed. I mean, it's like butterscotch. Right. It's it, <laughs> so uh, you're swooning as well. I'm swooning, well, Dookie. Hmm. So we're all a swoon here in the studio over the two guests. Dookie, you were pretty nervous, I hear beforehand. This is true. I have mega respect and love for Carmen, and it was a real honor to have her and her partner in crime, in many different crimes, her other half. John Reynolds in the studio. They did not disappoint, but I also didn't want to disappoint. So I, heard, I got a bit nervous. I heard you had kind of what you Brits call a dicky tummy. I did. You did. Yes. So basically, Carmen and John gave you the shits. Yes. Is that what you're saying, Dickie? Yes, I blame them. I blame them for my dodgy tummy. Is that the first time you've ever had the shits from from having some pretty illustrious guests on the show? No. No. Uh, yeah, I bet a lot of other people are giving you the shits. Yes, for different reasons, though. For for very <laughs> different. You you um, you get some illustrious guests, Dookie. Yes, this time it really really meant the what world to me and what the an world honor. to my guts. Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But you know, wow, what an honor! What an honor! And an hour before the duo turned up, I had bits of equipment seize up on me oh god that's yes. even worse so uh, i had to you know put stuff together with gaffer tape in order to make it work pretty much oh, so while i was having a chat with them i was really mindful of whether or not all my equipment was still working and no i'm not referring to my guts dookie mm. i have to say i've never seen the cushions on the dookie radio show studio sofas so plump yes they're very plump i did some plumping you did some plumping yeah some plumping was lots done. of cleaning and plumping going on yes and they were just as wonderful as you knew that they would be oh my word so lovely it felt like i'd known them for years and years and years very much um on the same page in terms of humor and outlook <gasps> dookie you're so lucky Dickie, you know, when we were in Edinburgh, she gave me one of her pens. Yes, which is still going strong. Yeah, and that pen that says hold me on it uh, saw me through a really bad day. I was having a really bad day at work. I think it was like in December. Mm. And I had that pen out on my desk. And just every time I looked at it, it cheered me up. And then, and then, but the other week, what happened was somebody at work asked me to borrow a pen and I was kind of stressing out about something Mm. and I didn't realize, I just said, oh yeah, help yourself at at my pen bag. And they took the Carmen pen. 
And when I noticed, I about crapped myself. And I went chasing after that person like a rabid dog after a motorcycle. Is that a thing? It is now. It is now, yes. And I got the pen back. That's the most important thing. Yeah, normally, you know, you don't mind. You know, like if it's just like a Bic, mm. you know, who cares? An ordinary biro pen. There yeah. are other pen there manufacturers. There are other pens. And, but that one, I was like, yeah, I will not let that happen again. Let me just tell you that. Perhaps that's what that phrase really means. Not just hold me, but hold on to me. Well, exactly, Dookie. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, we're all kind of fangirls and boys in this studio, aren't we? Mm. Mark Maron with the president of the USA. Nothing on us having Carmen. Yeah, I mean, and John. Carmen and John. I mean, I I, I looked up, he's a cartoonist. Yes, and uh, a writer. He's a Renaissance man. Pretty amazing stuff there a from what I saw. A person. Yeah, I mean, my God. Dookie, you're very lucky. Could you please warn us the next time? I mean, I think we should go back in time so you can warn Martha and I so that we could do the old, I think I'm going to be thick. So much for your Protestant work ethic. Well, uh, when it comes to Carmen mm. and Carmen's partner in crime, if you call him, you know, there is no Protestant work ethic that's that's strong enough. Because I would have much rather met them than been at work. So the interview that we're just about to hear. Yes. If you, Marsha, and you, and I'm pointing to you right now, Sylvia, yes. Yes. suddenly appear, it means that time travel is possible. I, th- I wish. I hope so, Dookie. If you can make that happen... That would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let me see if I can uh, find a, a flex capacitor. My name is Carmen Lynch, and my favorite word is knob. <laughs> I love knob, because our knob is so clean, and your mm. knob is dirty. I- indeed. Oh, not Biscuits. yours, Andy, yeah. Yeah. specifically. Ah. <laughs> and we have hobnobs. Have you ever had those? Lovely mm. chocolate bickies. Oh. Biscuits. Ooh. But that's just to get a rude word in an everyday product. <laughs> right. Mm. But Bicky, I already like that too. Mm. Bicky. Bicky. But, that, uh-huh. but that's weird. We would never do that with a candy in America. We wouldn't have a milky dick. No, never. Not yet. <laughs> a milky dick. That sounds so gross. That sounds like a medical problem, yeah. <laughs> <It does. laughs> Not a candy. I was thinking of Milky Way. Do you guys have Milky Ways here? Uh, no. They may have been available here for a while, but I'm aware of it. I've had it stateside. But basically, uh, it, it would be in competition with our Mars bar. And that's just a, uh-huh. a bad way to go. You, you hmm. know, yeah. But we have Mars bars, don't we? We have Mars bars. We yeah. used right. to. I think we still do. Mm. Yeah. I haven't seen them stateside. But then when you've got Hershey's left, right and center stateside, sometimes it's difficult. To, you're blinded by Pennsylvania's finest. It, that's right. Yeah. yeah. My name is John Reynolds. And my favorite words is pal from the fal, which is, <laughs> I, have I have to explain, which is uh, one of our favorite shows is The Fall. Right. From here with Gillian Anderson. And the serial killer's name is Paul. Mm. But they pronounce it pal. There must have been at least one person who cared whether I lived or died. Pal. Hey, pal. <laughs> and they say the fal. So we, I would always say to Carmen when we were watching it, are you ready for some more pal from the fal? And that, Maybe it's more like an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of an appreciation of the accent. 
yeah. uh, than the words itself. It's kind of like how on Game of Thrones they're like, Jen <laughs> Yeah, we used to love saying that to each other. Jen Like hard and true, Jon Snow. Do you watch Game of Thrones? I've only watched the first episode. Yeah. And it, it didn't do it for me, but I've been told to give it a you chance. It didn't do it for me either. Mm. And I gave it a chance. And, right. And uh, it, it's great. I really? think you'll enjoy it. How yeah. many episodes does it take in order to Three, have maybe, it? I think. Yeah. Really? So yeah. I was never impatient. learn all their names. Right. Yeah, forget, pretend but like... But that's a mark of a great show. If yeah. what, what show... I There's no other show I can think of where I I love it and I don't know anybody's name. Still. It's a yeah. sixth season. Well, not other shows don't have 800 characters on right. them. Right. So you can memorize the mm. names. Yeah. So I need not be worried about uh, keeping track of who's who. But also, no. it seems that people are getting killed left, right, and center on that yeah. program as well. So even in the first episode, I found myself bonding with a character. And the next thing you know, 10 minutes in, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you can't fall in love with anybody. But I find that refreshing. Yeah, it's, don't you? it is. True. I mean, you grew you you grew up with British television, which is the best television made in, really? in the world. Oh, you're just saying that because you're here. No, no, Carmen's heard me. No, say he that. says that. I yeah. we just finished Broadchurch, right, on Netflix. We watch a lot of British TV. And, uh, yeah, and uh, British comedy. I loved before I loved American comedy. Which British Spike, comedy? I mean, I f- discovered Spike Milligan later in college, but I loved him and Monty Python, of course, and Faulty Towers and. Uh, Fry and Laurie and Saunders and French and all those. Guys. You, these are some all. programs that I didn't even realize had crossed the pond. Yeah, is this I mean, through well, BBC Saun- America? I don't think Saunders or? and French. I, I I don't know that. One. I could read, I could read their sketches before I could see them. I right. Think. Um, How did that come about? Just looking online and yeah, looking online and finding stuff online. Right. Usually. And I had friends who who had family here. Right in the in the eighties, and they would come back with. That's how I found out about Asterix. I'm a huge comics person, and uh, love Asterix and Obelisk, and and uh, and uh, I got those books. I got the British translations of those books in the eighties, in the early eighties. Dedication yeah, when, I was, when I was a kid. Yeah, mm. that's that's dedication. Yeah. That's, that's love. Yeah, oh, oh, total. obsession. An Anglophile. You yeah. should see our bookcases. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a comic store. It's a comics in, in library. Yeah. And what about yourself, Carmen? Did you were you an Anglophile in terms of your teen years, student years? I, uh, I mean, I grew up on the more of the Spanish side because I grew right. up in Spain, mm. so I had a lot of those. I loved the Spanish comic books, um, but I, uh, I appreciate. I love coming out here, so I appreciate the comedy out here a lot it's my third year in a row where i've done shows out here it's quite rare for an american comedian to be visiting these shores as regularly as you have a lot of canadians come here and to be really honest it's just because it's another place that has the the queen on the money so Mm. (laughs) you know you took edinburgh by storm Oh, thank you. An absolute highlight. Oh. I'm so glad that we came across you at Fast Fringe. Your dry <laughs> delivery was just the tonic uh, that, that we needed. And it was just, on that particular night, you were in a, an entirely different league to everyone else on the bill. Oh, and there were some fine comedians yeah. there as well. Are you going to be doing Edinburgh this year? Not this year, but I do want to go back. I would love right. to do it next year. I don't know yet when, but definitely... I would love, and I'd love John to come because it's so mm. much fun. There's so many great shows. I think I saw a show every day. I saw over 30 shows there. 
And that helped a lot too, just to see what's out there. Absorbing yeah. you know, what other people are doing. Yeah. I came the year before to uh, do some shows um, and I went to the Fringe for maybe three days because mm. I had a friend out there and I wanted to check it out. And then once I was there, I was like, I have to do this. This would be so fun. It felt like camp, you know, it's like mm. comedy camp. And where did you stay when you were there in, in Edinburgh? Were you with other comedians? Did you have your own digs? I had a place with four other comedians. And at the very, like, not the very last minute, but like two months before it started, uh, my friend, someone I met um, in a writing class, her daughter goes to college there. And she's like, do you just want to have my daughter's one bedroom and i'm like are you kidding goodness so she rented it out to me for like so cheap and uh and i just ended up having my own place yeah it was crazy that's incredible yeah was it reasonably centrally located very central it was two minutes from the counting house where i performed and i now i'm like can you just stay in college forever so i can come back and live in your apartment absolutely because when fringe starts the 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 rates for digs around there for flats oh, yeah, any I kind bet. of a boat floor space go up yeah. so to high. really yeah to yeah. disgusting levels yeah i have a feeling my next fringe i i lucked out on a couple of things that year and i i feel like the next one i'll be crying on the floor somewhere mm. it'll be hard to find a place to live <laughs> when it comes to finding out about people on the world wide web often the information that one comes across is shall we say fabricated Shall we say, why am I saying, shall we say, in your particular case, Carmen, is it true that you started as a flamenco dancer? <laughs> I, well, I did grow up in Spain. So, yeah, I did flamenco, um, I think I was five because we lived there until I was eight. So, yeah, so I was like between five and seven. Mm. I used to flamenco dance with my sister, but it wasn't like we we were like performers, like professionals, but right. we would take classes and then there would be like performances in Sevilla, which is in the south of Spain where the flamenco is so popular. So yeah, that, that's all true. Did you ever earn a living for any period of time? As a dancer? <laughs> As a dancer. Hell no. No. Right. There is no. a bio somewhere which kind of implies that that's how you got your start. What is it? Oh, I wonder if it's just a joke. Like, right. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. It's my yeah. British sensibility. Taking things too seriously. <laughs> Damn you, internet. But it's, no, it's funny. Sometimes I'm like, oh, it took me so long to become a performer. And then I'm like, wait a second. When I was five, I was a <laughs> mango dancer. <laughs> is it also true that you were pre-med at university? Yes, that's true. How long did that last? Not long at all. I was pre-med in college. Uh, chemist, chemistry was my major. And I was, I was pretty smart in high school. And then I went to college and everything was really hard. I went to a really hard school. Mm. And, uh, and I, I couldn't get good grades. And so I had to change my major. And I, just, I was not... I couldn't be a doctor. It was too hard. <laughs> when you enrolled at university, did you have a, a dream of what kind of doctor you would be? Orthopedic surgeon was my thing. Right. Yeah. I wanted to... Uh, I I was so into becoming a doctor, and I, I still think it would be amazing, but I, I feel like there's a part of me that maybe thought that that would make my parents really happy. My mother was a nurse, so ah. sometimes I would go to her hospital and watch operations. Like, she would find a way for me to watch and then i'd see people's like stomachs get cut open and i guess i was trying to train myself to mm. and it's weird because now i can't stand the sight of blood like 
I would make a horrible doctor. Right. But. Did you ever have a period in which you were okay witnessing it? Did the aversion... Oh, yeah. If it's someone else, it's fine. If right. it's me, I can't stand it. Yeah. So in a way, you were practicing aversion therapy quite yes. early on <laughs> by yes. witnessing your mum's work as a nurse. Yeah. And she probably kind of assumed that, you know, this was going to be, you know, a pathway for your medical career. That's why comedy was such a shock to them, I think, mm. because they thought I was going to be a doctor. And then they went to a stand-up show when I first started, which was horrible. Like, no one showed up. Right. And, uh, and they were like, this is why we paid for your college, so you could ruin <laughs> our lives. <laughs> comedy is the new medicine, though. We, we, you know, it's a fact. It's oh true. yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that you then went on to you changed your degree to, to psychology. I changed it a lot. Yeah, right. Yep, and then I even actually applied to the FBI. So if you read that, that's true too. Oh no, no I didn't. <laughs> yes. And obsessed with Silence of the Lambs, obsessed with all that stuff. Uh, met an FBI agent in Virginia because Quantico, where they train, is was near our our house. So I met up with an agent and I spoke to him and he's like, you're going to have a very lonely life. And I'm like, well, stand up is not that different. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, and they loved foreign languages and I was fluent in Spanish. And at the time they, they just said, when we need Spanish people, we'll contact you. And they did. They're like, we're looking for Spanish people. You can test for the FBI. And I failed the first part of the test. <laughs> Do you know what you failed well, on? It, it was like six parts. It's like, you know, physical, edu like, you know, exercise. Like you have to run a certain speed and you have to do pull-ups and all that stuff but that was later the first part was math and uh personality you have to have a, a specific kind of personality mm. to work for the fbi and it was either the math or the personality part they don't tell you but i took those the same day and i i got back i got the skinny envelope when i saw this skinny envelope oh. i was like there's mm. no way and it was like you didn't you didn't pass oh, no well i mean it's comedy's uh, benefit that this happened yeah otherwise you'd be out there doing fbi related stuff and being and lonely it, it would probably be uh, in somewhere in miami like they were like spanish people go to the toward the drug thing say hello to my little friend <laughs> you know wasn't the the fantasy fbi world that i was picturing mm. you know <laughs> like jodie foster's silence <laughs> of the lambs really shaped your goals legitimately and the x-files like all those shows yeah hmm. they uh i wanted that but i don't know again i don't know if that was just it looked like that was was cool more than you know i'm true i'm going to sound like a careers counselor now my guess is the fact that you did well presumably in sciences at, mm -hmm. at in high school your maths ability yes. must be you know at a good. very high standard so yeah. it wasn't that it was the personality factor. I think it was, you know what, the one of the questions I remember very well, and I get kind of stumped when everything looks like, I, I'm really bad at making decisions, first of all. Mm. Ask this guy. But but it, it would say, like, there's a project that's due in an hour, and clearly you're, you won't be finished in an hour. Do you, A, do as much as you can by yourself, mm. B, ask your coworkers to help you, or C, tell your boss that you're not going to get this done. You know, it was stuff like that where you're like, what would the FBI want? Oh, my God. Do they want me to work alone or do you want me to communicate to others? You know, so it, all the answers sound right. And mm. that those were the kind of questions they had. And I was like, well, I bet these are all right. But which one are they looking for? Psychometric testing is a horrible thing to have to do. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, you're told to be 
uh, to approach it in a natural way. But how can you? You you inherently are going to have a bias towards what the organisation who are administering right. the test want. Yeah. So you, you decided to do the FBI. You went the FBI route, and uh, and maybe maybe they wanted you to be more yourself. I am so glad that none of that stuff works, honestly. Because mm. I. I love what I do now, but I probably would have just been a horrible FBI agent because I get scared sometimes if do, I hear a sound. Was the love of Silence of the Lambs secretly wanting to be an actor? Maybe, yeah. Like you would just, it would be cool to do the, the part of Jodie Foster in uh, that movie rather than I be I think so, FBI. yeah. I think, I mean, of course. That, that sounds amazing to yeah. just play a detective. Mm. And did the thespian world ever entice you? That was the first, that's what got me to New York was I took an acting class in a church in Virginia. It was in the basement of a church and uh, that particular acting class, I was like, this is amazing. And then I'm like, I quit my banking job and moved to New York. Like stand up was not a thing. I never even thought about it. It's not something I followed. I moved to New York to become an actress and then accidentally fell into stand up. Right. And well, thank goodness you fell into it. How, how does one accidentally fall into stand-up? I went to a show. I lived in the 20s on First Avenue. There's a cl- comedy club that's still there that a uh, couple of friends that I made in New York, uh, we went to see a show. And uh, I honest to God thought those people on stage were just naturally funny. I didn't know they had to like work on their jokes. I thought you just stood up and talked. And then you just went on with the rest of your day. And I was so jealous. Mm. I was like, that's not fair. It just happened instantaneously. Yeah, they were like models. Like mm. they just did their thing and then they just left, you know. And uh, and then I learned that, no, that there are writing classes that teach you stand up. And I was already a writer. Like I wrote journals. I had diaries. My whole life I've done like, you know, I wrote things down. So I took a class and I used the material that I had in my journals to uh and i brought it to class and i found the jokes in those things and then i i just fell in love with it so you used your own life experience as the the basis for yeah because i was very frustrated at the time i wasn't getting any acting work i'd get like a call back when they ask you back again Mm. and i'm six feet tall and i remember i would get a call back with like a short person a short guy and I'm like I'm not gonna get this part he's 5'2 this is not a comedy you know mm. and so I would write because I would do morning pages which are these like like morning notes that you do and I would be like this sucks and all that so I would talk about being tall and being angry on stage as a comedian and then of course you know your tragedy is other people's comedy so people would laugh at my stuff <laughs> so I would just talk about like all, most of my jokes at the beginning were about being tall mm. And the weird things that people would ask you. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. You get the, you know, the all the tall people get the same questions. So you play basketball, all that stuff. We, we all get asked the same stuff. Uh, it's just it's heightest, really. Let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, it was a good way to because I was you know I was very shy and I wasn't at, when I first took the stand up class. I was thinking I'll just write for someone who's a comedian. I didn't think I was going to do it. Because it just looked really scary. And then the teacher was like, you're going to want to... As soon as you write jokes, you're going to want to do them yourself. And I'm Mm. like, I don't think so. And then in that first performance, um, he tapped me on the shoulder and he's like, I want you to try this. And I did. And he was right. He's like, it's way more fun to do your own jokes than to give them to someone else. Certainly. And 
talking of writing jokes for other people, John, mm. you spent six years writing for Craig Ferguson. Right. Who's a bit like the band Bush, a, a British concern that's hugely popular stateside. It's a dated reference, but work with me. <laughs> but here, comparatively unknown. Swallowed. Yeah, the unknown, comparatively yeah, unknown. Yeah, he, wow. he's not very well known in these parts. Wow. Um, was that James Corden, for instance? He was on popular sitcoms mm. here, right? Uh, yeah. Whereas Ferguson you know, did a a film about hairdressers uh, and and that was about it. And then suddenly I was stateside and this Scottish chap was doing very, very well. Yeah. What was the writing room like? Six years, a a long time to dedicate to a a programme like that. I um, probably should have stayed two years. Right. (laughs) But that's true about any television show, if you're lucky lucky enough to be on a show for that long, because you you start to do the same thing over and over again. And especially in topical late night stuff, your your uh, you know your Sarah Palin is your your Dan Quayle is stupid joke becomes George W. Bush's stupid mm-hmm. joke, you know. Um, but on that show, Craig was not a citizen when he started that show, so he was very tentative about really harsh political jokes because he felt weird attacking the country that was basically giving him his bread and butter mm. and um and he wasn't a citizen of it so that was weird because uh we we were doing kind of softball topical jokes and then we would try to lead into a personal story of his that we the, the writers would just load jokes into so for the first two years when he wasn't a citizen it was a lot of that and then he became a citizen and then we then we could kind of unleash a bit more the bile could yeah. come out <laughs> yeah exactly and he did he hosted the white house correspondence dinner uh for george bush's last year and uh and so i think he had, yeah he must have become a citizen by then because uh, that was all yeah that mm. was all ripping him I've apart i've seen some of the footage from yeah. that and in a soft way still mm. though he wasn't as harsh as like uh um uh, what's his face? Stephen Colbert. Do you guys know him? Yes. And uh, do you know John Oliver? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like John Oliver, who's not a citizen, has no problem ripping apart our country. On, I believe on, he's a, on our he soil. became a U.S. national about 18 months or so ago. Oh, so he has. Mm. Okay. He has an American wife. And uh, so, yeah, he's, he's legitimately... Well, he had no problem now. before that. Mr. Ferguson, when yeah. you were working with him, yeah. did um, was this around the time that he <laughs> had a couple of problems? He, he, had, uh, he had been, uh, what is, I'm trying to think of the code term for it, and I can't. He wasn't drinking anymore, if right. that's what you mean. Right. But I think right. he stopped that before he even came to the States. Oh, fair enough. From a timeline yeah. point of view, I wasn't sure but how But he used to talk out. openly about his problem right. uh, on the show. And... Um, and I'm pretty sure he was on his way to he has a great story about being on his way to kill himself and stopping for a drink at a pub oh. and then for getting so drunk, he forgot he was going to go kill himself. Uh, and that when he woke up the next day, he went, what was I doing last night? Oh, my God, I was going to kill myself. I have a problem. And then he he did what he needed to do to take care of that. Um, so he uh, he was he and he was always uh, he was always great with me because I got to perform on the show a lot. Um, and, uh, so I was writing on that show, every, the writers wrote everything they wrote. Like some shows have just the monologue writers and then a separate group that writes the sketches, but we got to do everything. So I got, and it was my first late night show that I'd ever written for. So 
which was another reason why I didn't want to leave because I was getting to do, you know, whatever I wanted kind of. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then, but then towards the end, um, one of the things I helped create was he had a robot sidekick named that he named Jeff Peterson. That was like a, a, a skeleton with a, <laughs> with a suit and it was voiced, uh, when, when I helped create it, I, it was supposed to be like a one week joke where he would have this robot sidekick. He'd push a button under his desk and a random line would just come out of the robot that we'd pre-record mm. and then because he's so good at riffing and ad-libbing um he would just riff off of that and he loved it and so he kept that going for about a year and then he went i want the robot to be sentient and he hired the actor who did the voice a guy named josh robert thompson who's a very talented guy uh to basically stand off to the side and do the robot live and once he did that he didn't want to do sketches anymore he he just wanted to talk to that robot. <laughs> <laughs> he enjoyed the riffing that yeah, much. Yeah. So there was like there was no you know I had kind of done everything I needed to do on that show, and uh, and there was nothing left to do. Um, and then he was and then he 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 ended up quitting. Like I left in twenty twelve or thirteen, and he and I think he he ended the show in twenty fourteen. And that's when Corden came in. Right. I mean, it, it sounds like it, it had run its course as a creative outlet for yourself. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, I'm just looking at the, my DVD box set there. Oh, my gosh. I love that show. Larry Sanders. Uh, One of the- we were just talking about it because yeah. they, there's a great documentary that Judd Apatow did. I saw it last week. What, what did you think? Uh, Carmen it, hasn't seen I it yet, so it we yet. can't spoil it. But I, I stayed up all night watching the whole thing. So did I. Amazing, Yeah, right? I had to watch them back to back. Incredible. And the, the eulogies at the end. Uh, Heartbreaking. I, I welled up. Yeah. I really, really, really did. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Nealon was phenomenal. Yeah, that guy's genius, too. I love him. From the the real life Craig Ferguson show experience that you had how close was that to Larry Sanders very close really oh yeah do you you've seen them all yes so do you remember they had they did several episodes like this most of the show has a lot of this in it but they did one particular episode they may have even titled it the bubble where Gary or Larry says I want to get to pal around with the staff more and Rip yes. Torn is like, you don't want to do that. Mm. You want to stay in the bubble. And he's like, no, I don't. I feel too aloof. And then, of course, he does it. And it's like everybody's like, you know, clamoring for his time. And he's like, put me back in the bubble. Put me back in the bubble. <laughs> and that's very true. Like Craig, Craig never came. Craig came out of the bubble before I got there. He had been on about a year before I started. And uh, he had he palled around uh, with some of the writers. I mean, one of the writers on the show was his best friend. So that that stayed continuous but he kind of he was kind of a little bit more open uh than before before i got there and by the time i got there he was secured in the bubble so right. my conversations with him and everything were always when we were doing sketches on the when i was on the floor with him um you know rehearsing or whatever uh but there wasn't much if i saw him in the hallway he was always you know polite and everything but he he kept his distance the only thing about the larry sanders show which uh, seemed not entirely feasible is that the 
he appeared to only have a group of you know two or three writers. Is that uh, yeah, presumably and that, with- that that that's called out by Conan O'Brien in the documentary, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, and I agree with Conan. I, I think every writer has the same feeling when they see this that show mm. is like that's bullshit. How large of a of a team did you have at uh, the Craig Ferguson at show? The, at its height, it was I believe. 12 writers which was still a smaller staff than most of the other shows Mm. even conan who was our competition at the time i think had 16 writers wow that sounds like a lot to me yeah but yeah Mm. um but uh the uh but by the end by the time i left they were down to like five because craig was just he didn't he just wanted to talk to the robot (laughs) (laughs) so all the all that was left to really write was the monologue so i suppose he became a that became a bubble within the bubble. Yeah. He was the yeah. only hermit on television. <laughs> uh, he didn't give a shit who who uh, was watching or listening, which was his appeal. I think a lot of people love him for that reason. Um, you know, he would do like he would do like cold opens with like puppets and shit and, and get the get the guest stars to do the other puppet and never announced that it was the guest star doing it or anything that would draw in people like, oh, I want to see so and so do a cat puppet. He wouldn't even bother. He was just like, I just found these puppets backstage. Let's just do a cold open. Let's make it up as we go, you know, so, which was, you know, frustrating for executives at times. But uh, I think the audience definitely his fans love it. I mean, and certainly a, a really different approach from the, the the slick entities that are Conan and Letterman. Yeah. And when you know when Jay Leno was doing the Tonight Show, and you could keep going because there's about 19 mm. late night talk shows in America right now. Half of them are on so Netflix. Many. Yeah. You guys have a lot too, don't you? Mm, I mean, a handful in comparison, about half that yeah. that number. I suppose that the the ones which are the most successful certainly kind of owe their careers to the, the Letterman format. Uh-huh. Looking at the Graham Norton show, for instance, you know you, you can see that they you know he's he definitely looked across the pond for inspiration. Uh-huh. And I think the first the first uh, chat show host to openly talk about the thievery of Letterman was Jonathan Ross. But out here, there's more of a panel kind of show, yes. right? Than a talk show this is what's what i suppose is the dream for most uk-based comedians is to enter the panel show world and there are so many and and usually just with with men on the panel or with Mm. a token woman shows like mock the week which feels a bit like an old boys club at times Mm -hmm. and usually the female comedian that would be on would be aesthetically obvious that's what's most British comedians or comedians based here doing Edinburgh, that's tends to be the dream is to, so, to get one of those juicy gigs. So mm. you would say that like, cause out in America, it's the, you know, getting on Conan and doing five minutes mm. or getting, so that would be their five minute vert. Like their Conan would be to get on a panel. show. Absolutely. Yeah. That's actually a good point. Most of the, the chat shows here, talk shows um, don't feature comedians doing their bits. Oh, okay. If they're invited onto the show, it's just to be a, a guest. So somebody like Michael McIntyre, he wouldn't be on the, the show to show any new material. It'd usually be to promote a tour. Mm-hmm. But by that stage, the comedian, in the case of, of Michael McIntyre, somebody that can sell out you know, 12,000 capacity venues. So he would be you know, up there with 
you know, I don't know, Anthony Banderas or somebody like yeah, that, yeah. and uh-huh. you know, yeah. who would be there advertising some you know that's animated on, production. That's on the chat show. Yes, on the chat show. So what's the difference then with what's a panel show? Panel show would be where um, there are a number of comedians who chime in on whatever the format is like. In the case of Mock the Week. It's a topical news uh, program. Right. So, like Chelsea from, lately. Yes. Or tough the roundtable. Yeah. The roundtable. Yeah, yeah. Like Larry, help me. He, Larry Wilmore. Yes. Like Larry Wilmore. Oh, he the was he used to be show? on our Daily hmm. Show. Right. And he got a show called The Nightly Show for about a year or two, year and a half. And he'd have comedians on a panel. Right. Yeah. But, and before that was Tough Crowd with your yeah. buddy Colin Quinn, and uh, that that was similar to panel shows here. It sounds like. I'm supposed to say the the Bill Maher. Uh, reference point right. would be apt as well. Right, yeah. that's right, real yeah, time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the panel shows don't just cover news, they can cover sport. They also can be hilarious versions of popular game shows. Uh-huh. So there's um, a, a show here called Countdown, which uh-huh. for, for the most part, those people at school that have been bullied, they will go on to do great things in Canada. <laughs> that's and Jeopardy a, for us. And, yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. You get Jeopardy over here? Uh, we did for a while. There was oh. a British version. I'm aware of the majesty of uh, Mr. Trebek. Oh, good. And his mustache. I've watched it. I enjoyed it. The UK version was terrible. Oh. Uh, but uh, it's a comedy version of Countdown. And and basically, it, it's for the most part, it's comedians who clearly have imbibed a little bit too much. Uh, celebrating their own ignorance and uh, embracing the surreal, and uh, and if you will, indicating the fact that they were also those people being bullied, but went on to to comedy rather than academic excellence. Uh-huh. And uh, but yeah, that that becomes uh, certainly a, a major outlet for for comedians here. My next guest is a very funny comedian. Please welcome Carmen Lynch. Do you mind me asking? Was it? through the Ferguson appearance that you met each other. It's how we reconnected. Ah. We actually met each other on a temp job years before that. Right. Yeah. And we're friends. And uh, then kind of lost touch with each other. And then um, she contacted me and said, I'm going through, you know, Facebook keeps us all united. Indeed. Um, <laughs> even with the Russian interference, we're still united. And uh, she contacted me through Facebook and, and said, um, you know, are you... Uh, I'm going to be on your show. And I was like, I'm not on the show anymore, but let's get dinner. Yeah. And then, yeah. And that's how we reconnected. And then I think about a year later, we, yeah. we started dating. Yeah. And what was the timeline between the temp job and you appearing on Ferguson? Oh, geez. Years. Yeah. Are we talking double digits years? Uh, 12, maybe. 12. Oh, yeah, goodness. Yeah. So it's Longer than quite that, a significant maybe. gap. Oh, yeah. 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 And we were talking off pod that... You both recently discovered that your fathers knew each other. That's right. They and were, were both the, in the Navy they, they were at the ba- same both time. In the same class at officer school in the Navy. <laughs> I mean, that was actually through John's brother because we never, we didn't actually talk about it. I think Michael, one of my brothers, figured was it like, out. you know, yeah. where where was your dad stationed? And I was like Georgia, and then. He started talking about how John's dad was in Georgia, and then yeah. we made the connection. And then my dad found the yearbook, and they're both on the same page. Yeah. My word, that is an incredible thing. Yeah, very incredible. And then my mother, my father passed away like uh, 13 years ago, but uh, my mother, we kept asking my mother, don't you remember? They came up, Carmen's parents met my mother at Christmas, because they came up from uh, Virginia and uh, had Christmas at my mother's in New York, and uh I was have been bugging my mother. You must remember, like, 
the, the, you know, there weren't that many people in the class. And she, I don't, I don't remember them. And so I kept teasing that, that they probably swapped wives or whatever you did <laughs> in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, whenever that was. And uh, she doesn't like that either. <laughs> Maybe because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different era. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah it was the key parties. What they were yeah. like. Yeah. yeah you know, no, like, but those no are way. the ones. Yeah, those are yeah, always yeah. the ones yeah. that do it. Yeah. When you were living in Spain as a child, was that while your father was stationed out there? My yeah, my dad right. was stationed a couple of places in the states, and then and then Spain. And then whereabouts yeah. in Spain was that Rodo? Rodo, which right. is right outside of Sevilla, mm. um, and then Madrid. Hence the reason why you speak with a Castilian dialect. I went to the American School of Madrid, so we learned Spanish, and also my mother's sp- from Spain. My mm. mother always talked to us in Spanish and my father always talked to us in, 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 a, in English. Right. So growing up, we didn't know why. We just figured, you know, you look at your mother and it just comes out in Spanish and then over, they did it on purpose, which my sister does to her kids now. She married a man from Spain. Right. And, you know, that helped us become bilingual. ¿Dónde estabas ayer noche? ¿Eh? ¿Con otra mujer? Te voy a matar. Pero primero me voy a lavar los dientes. And you've performed... As a comedian in Spanish, how have you had to adjust your routine, apart from the obvious of doing it in Spanish? Do do the do the jokes land in the same way from a subject matter point of view? Um, I would say the first time I did it, the su- more subtle stuff didn't really land. Mm. Um, it's landing more now, especially in Barcelona, because in Bar- Barcelona is where I usually do it, because that's where my family lives. So I'll go to Barcelona and I'll do jokes. But I mean, the, the, the grammar is such a, it's so different from the American. So I really do have to kind of think about it before I go up there. If it's, if it's like a complicated joke, because mm. you want to get the punchline right and get that last word that gets the joke. You know, it's just, it's just, it's like a puzzle. So you're going up there. I, I feel like it's almost like I'm going up there as a new comedian, but I have all the experience from being an actual comedian so it's it's kind of a it's a challenge, but it's fun. Have you ever actually written a joke in Spanish first and then yes. translated only, it the other way? Only recently, because I uh, a couple of years ago I I went for six weeks, so I really got to just kind of stay and soak in the Spanish comedy, and um, and then I just started writing jokes in Spanish. Yeah. How has that transition been going from Spanish into to English? Have you done that where the the Spanish joke has suddenly made it to a New York audience? Have you done it that uh, way yeah, yet? Yeah, a little bit, not right. so much. Cuz uh, a lot of the stuff I I'm doing in Spanish for the first time is like what I've noticed about Spain. Uh, so observations. Observations. And, right, fair yeah. enough. I am really sorry. We're going to disturb this bodacious banter with the semi-welcome return of Posh Pit. Uh, the, uh, I think I might have got whiplash in the Posh Pit. Oh, it really is so high octane, isn't it, this Posh Pit? No! It's the semi-welcome return of Posh Pit. It's been way too long, Dookie. I mean, it hasn't been something that I've avoided doing. It's just that I haven't been exposed to posh people or myself being out in the elements and doing incongruous things to what you would expect them to be involved with. I find that hard to believe. 
Why is that? Well, because you know lots of posh people who do things that aren't necessarily thought of as being posh. I do. Like, for instance, one of your fellow musicians, he said he had to get up early one Saturday. As one does. As one does. And I asked him why, and he said it was because he was going to play squash. Right. And that made me laugh a bit, because he's he gets on stage and does all this sweaty guitar playing stuff. Mm. But in this country, particularly squash, or as Americans call it, racquetball, mm. is known to be quite a posh thing. Uh, I Whereas I think so. racquetball in the States maybe doesn't have the same kind of connotation. Really? But can you imagine some snaggletooth person named Cletus in the southern states? There are other parts of the USA saying... Well, tomorrow morning I'm going to have to go and play some racquetball. Well, not necessarily, but wouldn't it be great if they did? True. Because that would be the same kind of incongruousness. Indeed. So, I think that you have, you know lots of posh people. Uh, I do. And they do unposh things, and I like that. Non-conveyor belt kinds of people. Yes, the same way that I would like it if somebody called Bubba, you know, went off and played... I don't know, golf, say. Mm. I think that would be quite funny. It would be breaking down some boundaries. It would. I like that. I like like people doing incongruous things. This example for Posh Pit is incongruous, but I'm not necessarily sure how much I like it, but it is appropriate for Posh Pit. Gotcha. I went to this place called Reptile. It's in North London, and it's a goth meets punk meets industrial meets metal epicenter and this was reflected in the bands who were on the bill so you get an idea for what the audience might be like and what the venue's like yes great place i went to the bar to get around in yes and this chap orders the following chap dookie that's quite partial in and of itself could i have a pint of peroni which is an italian lager yes featuring a lemonade top He used the word featuring. Featuring. You know what that makes him? What? Makes him a knobhead. A posh knobhead. You're not wrong there. All of that banal chat to get to a knob joke. A knob joke. Deary me. Anyway, we return to the interview with Carmen and John. Enjoy. One thing about looking at your showreel, I wonder if it's something you're conscious of or if it takes an outsider like me to point it out, <laughs> is... Is this how, the acting reel? If it's on oh YouTube, God. I have okay. seen it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I've, then you've seen the videos. You've seen all. Oh, I'm you aware of all. and have a great affection for Quilt Woman, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. Hi. I didn't know this was a meeting for people with problems. I just wanted to talk about quilts. I love Quilt Woman. Huge Those fan. are my quilts. Oh. So, but I might be a little biased then, but yeah, Th- those that are pink my one's lovely. Thank but you. I understand you don't. Well, you don't have that one anymore. I just took a big old crap on that new pink quilt, so some other family's gonna get it. I just gave it to a thrift store. Shh. It was given to a thrift shop, wasn't it? With an extra gift. <laughs> yes, you're a true. Very fan. good, Andy. Uh, indeed. Oh, I will make well, another quilt oh, please. video That's when I get for back Andy. to the States for you. Hi, I'm back. Did you miss me and my quilts? Our uh, quilt woman needs her own show. She does. I agree. I There's totally nothing agree. wrong with her. She's yeah. fine. Yeah. Perfectly adjusted. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's it. so funny, Andy. <laughs> it's it's he, absolutely brilliant. He's a fan. I know. Um, I love I'm it. A, anyway, a you have questions. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. The question isn't about the, the YouTube sketches, clips, if you will, but in your actual stand-up tone, mm. seeing some of your early television performances stateside, it's as though in the last year or two... Your delivery has changed. Oh, really? Tell yes. me. Yes. And, and the only way I can describe it, and I, I'm sure that when I hear this back, I'll think of a better way, is it's like you've taken a little bit of Daria and just oh. added that spice. La, 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 la. There is a slightly more knowing, drier delivery, which was a little bit of a shock after we saw you at Fast Fringe. That was our first exposure to you. Hadn't seen any YouTube clips. And we found ourselves doing impressions of you. <laughs> Pretty good ones, actually. <laughs> You're going to have to so, do uh, it, you know. Oh, <laughs> maybe, uh, you can't afford me. <laughs> and uh, and it, was, it was weird. We were living with the impressions that we were doing uh, for a couple of days because of the gap between Fast Fringe and seeing you for the first mm-hmm. time. And then when we went to see the YouTube footage of your sort of early television appearances, it was just a little bit different. The pitching was a little bit higher. The delivery was faster. I think maybe it's with experience comes a more confident... Maybe, yeah. I don't need to rush this. Mm. And with that, the, the delivery... Yeah. Is, is different. Interesting to hear because, you know, I'm in my mm. own head, so I can't see these things mm. as much. Um, but I had a friend tell me recently who's also from back in the temp days, and she's known me forever, and she's like, your comedy has changed. Mm. Um, and there, there is a part of me that could be experienced, like you said, or also uh, there is a part of me that I feel like is kind of like coming out of my shell because I think at the beginning it was very monotone and very deadpan mm. and there it's more playful now as well so i mean i, I think there is an an evolving mm. it's certainly a bit more edgy now as well yes for want of a, more... a better word but edgy yeah, comes darker, to mind it's darker a mm. little more edgy yeah and that's fun and i mean to be fair though it's obviously when you're appearing on you know national television stateside your edgier material needs to be kept from the the cameras, mm-hmm. because people might be, you know, shocked about the morning after pill joke, for instance, yeah, yeah. and two belchers and twins and all that. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and but I should and, uh, do that one tonight. I haven't done that one. In a while. Oh, it's a good one. Uh, it's you. a good one. It will work here. Yes. <laughs> I come from the the musical world, and I I've met many a, a rock wife and many a, a rock husband. As the the comedy equivalent, having a partner, John, who is yeah. in in comedy. How does it feel to have a lot of uh, relationship-based humour making its way into performances? Uh, uh. Yes, yeah, she um, ruthlessly makes fun of me. Mm. <laughs> With love. Um, yeah, and I love it. I love it. I come from an improviser background. Mm. Do you guys know the Upright Citizens Brigade? No. Theater? No. They're they're big in New York and Los Angeles, and they came from Chicago, which is a hotbed of improv, Second City. Second City, yes. Improv Olympic mm. and the Annoyance Theater. Um, so I, that's what I, I, I started that 16 years ago and I still perform not as regularly as I used to. So I'm sort of used to um, being made fun of. Right. And uh, making fun of others. So I make fun of her all the time. You can handle it. On stage, (laughs) you know. Uh, And I can totally handle it. And I love it. But but Carmen will still ask me, 
uh, is this okay? And I, I always try to say, I don't want to ever, you know, get in the way. Cause I know I wouldn't want that, you know? So I would say, don't ever, don't even ask me. Just do whatever you want to do. Absolutely. I mean, don't, Freedom don't do comedy. a joke with my social security number in it. Mm. That's about it. Um, maybe you could do that one tonight. <laughs> but that's all. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. And it's, um, you know, it's a, a, and I, and I get a little attention because she's talking about me, you know? I, yeah. It was funny last uh, night at the store because I was doing jokes about him and then I just went, oh wait, he's here. Yeah. I got a big and laugh and too. I got a big laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It, it, thank God you didn't say it. Stand up, oh. you know, and show everybody. Yeah, I'm fine if they don't know who I am. Anonymity <laughs> is a thing of beauty. Yes, and, totally. Uh, and also, you know, your own routine. At times, it, it's uh, depending upon what you're using. Um, like at Fast Fringe, it, it appeared as though you were a single person. You know, talking about entering the dating world. But then when I saw your the full hour show, yeah, you then went in deep. Yeah, I yeah. think it's into the relationship to, yeah, world. To start off yeah. being single, then then bringing John up, and then saying I'm single. <laughs> there, there are certain <laughs> singles jokes that I I wanted to keep in there because they're fun to do. In terms of your both of your respective lives, you've gone down acting, comedy, banking, mm-hmm. flamenco dancing, <laughs> <laughs> and in John's case, you're also a cartoonist. But more about that later. The President's Show. Talk to me. That's a late night topical right. comedy show. It's a guy named Anthony Atamianek who is from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. He does an impression of Donald Trump. Right. That caused quite a, a, a quite a commotion last year during the presidential race. He was uh, doing live tours around the country with another guy named James Adomian, who I worked with on Ferguson. He used to. He's a great comedian and impersonator. He did an amazing George Bush. So we used to have him on with Craig as as George Bush, and Craig would interview him. And he does an amazing Bernie Sanders. So he and Anthony did Trump versus Bernie around the states. And uh, from that, Anthony got his own show, which is the President Show, which is what if Donald Trump, in addition to being president of the United States, hosted his own talk show. And so that's what he does. He sits at, a, at the desk at the Oval Office. Mike Pence, which is played by Peter Gross, who's the executive producer as well, uh, and co-showrunner, he sits there as his sidekick. And then they ha- they do the desk piece. They but it's all through the vision of Trump, and it's on a, a network called Comedy Central. And how are you finding that from a creative outlet point? It's of amazing view? because I was kind of burned out on. Late night. I do. I do a lot of writing for animation as well. So I worked at DreamWorks after Craig for about three years on several projects and uh, television shows of theirs. And uh, then came moved back. I was in Los Angeles and I moved back to New York to do the President Show, which is where it's shot. And uh, it was getting to do a late night talk show. You can't do jokes the way you do it on James Corden or Stephen Colbert or um, Fallon, you have to do it through Trump's voice. Mm. So how would he... They they knew right away they couldn't have him do monologue jokes because the guy has... The president has no sense of humor. Uh, he, what he thinks is funny is really not funny. <laughs> so, uh, so what they did instead of a monologue, the template every week was he would just hold a press conference. The journalists would ask him questions. And then in giving the answer, that's where we would put the joke. Um because he because he's Trump, he's going to say something that contradicts uh, what's going on. So, for example, that when when he banned the trans from the military, um, the journalist said, "You're banning tra- transgenders from the mil- military, um, but you supported 
transgenders before you were president and now you don't. Uh, what do you say to people who say you're racist and homophobic? And he says, I, I'm offended because I'm trans policy. I went from one policy to another, and that's who I am. And don't offend me like that. You know, so it was a way of doing jokes of where, you know, we, we, we didn't want to offend people because Trump is very offensive. So we always tried to find what's the stupid Trump answer mm. that we can do that can point out even more what this guy is doing. So in a way, you, you need to have Trump in your head. Yeah. 24-7. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> do, 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 but you know, I think everybody has him in their head, whether they want it or not. So yeah, yeah, really the, anyone the, could the, write for the he, show. Yeah. And um, do, do you find yourself doing impressions of him in your head while you're the, writing? Yeah, but terrible ones. Bits and bobs. Yeah, <laughs> right. Terrible. I always, I played Trump once on Ferguson and it was awful, but I looked great because our makeup department was amazing. <laughs> but I play him like this. I play him like a new, and it sounds nothing like him. <laughs> Uh, so I still do that when I'm at when I'm in the office. I'm like, if I go into my Trump, it sounds nothing like the real Trump or what Anthony does. And the the schedule must be pretty full on for a program like that, because presumably it's going to be based on events that have happened in between episodes. How yeah. how regularly is that show it was broadcast? La- last year it was weekly. Right. This year it they're just doing specials and they they right. may go back to weekly, they may not. It's it's unclear that the Comedy Central is moving things around. So we just did we just finished a special last week uh which was an hour long which was Trump holding a telethon to raise money for America. <laughs> Uh, which was based on a 1970s movie starring John Ritter of Three's Company fame. If you guys know him at all, uh, I'm, I'm aware of the program. Now, but, yes, yeah, but he was he was a great uh, comedic actor, and uh, and uh, he did a movie called Americathon in the that came out in the 70s. And Anthony loves that movie, <laughs> and he was like, "That's exactly what Trump would do now." But of course, he would say the money is for America, but then he would pocket it himself, and then that that's what comes out in the special. When the show was weekly, what hours were you doing as a as a writer? Was they the- were. Th- this was the greatest show I've ever worked for, and continues to be because I think we're going to have another special coming up next month. Um, the all of the people who are in charge have been in the grunt level all the mm-hmm. way up to the EP, and have an appreciation for what it's like to um, have their time wasted writing stuff that's not that the producers know isn't going to make it on the air but they want to keep you busy i've been involved with shows that do stuff like that these guys are incredible so you never we always went home by 7 p.m which is kind of unheard of for some of these shows i can imagine and this is a weekly show so a nightly show well even a nightly show you could like i I hear kimmel you go pretty late because they'll have you right after the taping but uh you would do like on Ferguson. We were we'd be home um, in the beginning. We'd be we, it would be ten o'clock at night, which mm. is kind of kind of late. Um, but then it started to get the hours started to get better as Craig got more comfortable. Um, and the robot took over. And then when the robot took over, <laughs> yeah, it's like you could we, leave at four we, in the afternoon. Four, yeah, exactly. There was nothing to do. Um, but uh, but this show, they they know exactly how to get the most out of us uh, during the day. And then we're out by seven. And it's great because it really helps you just uh, decompress and like be recharged for mm, the next absolutely. day, which you need for that show. Because when it was weekly, because Trump is such a maniac, the news cycle changes on a dime every day, yeah, especially last year. Mm. Um, so we, you know, he fired Comey on 
Thursday at our, we were uh, Thursday at like noon and we were on we were taping at five. So we had to rewrite a ton of stuff for that. And that kind of stuff would happen every week. So you'd have the show ready to go and then he'd do something in the afternoon and and it would change i can see stuff. why it's become a, a special based rather than weekly yeah. because it's just, <laughs> right. he, he's such a dynamic yeah. character <laughs> yes to to put it lightly yeah and all of this amazing writing talent and you're also an incredible cartoonist oh, I, i've just you. been yeah. introduced to your work <laughs> I'm so thank you so much it, kind of, it's i reminds me of a shrigley and all just i i'm absolutely blown the be, away the beano the, oh Is, there's definitely some yeah, beano in craig there. introduced me to that right yeah oh, goodness you really are an anglophile yeah, i know i oh, love the british welcome man. to these shores i love the british <laughs> do you know bill hicks yes yeah like he uh, loved you guys indeed you well, guys we, appreciated him. yeah big time big time he he was loved here i think he was he was attracting you know, thousands of people to, to venues here in, in London when he was still just doing small clubs stateside. Yeah. Did you see the final Letterman appearance that it was yes. initially shelved? Yes. And then it, when it, he it had was his unearthed. Mother, he had Bill Hicks's mother on as a guest. Mm. And then they showed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was great. Uh, Bert Lahr's son, John Lahr, wrote this great article about Bill Hicks and about, about um, that particular uh, Letterman episode getting... Mm. Um, he when he got cut from it and what a big deal that was because that really that really sidetracked his career which sucks because he was and he died so young yeah so. and then seeing the the footage now it's quite tame in comparison yeah. but obviously with hindsight everything appears differently sure. and, and yeah. stuff and he was totally. an incredibly edgy comedian yeah in his own right and yeah. in many ways too far ahead of his time yeah did you go to art school are you formally trained in uh no i taught myself i was i when i was about six or seven i wanted to be a newspaper specifically a newspaper comic strip artist i loved the idea of i was obsessed with peanuts and uh uh, which is Charlie Brown and Snoopy. I don't mm. know if they call it Peanuts over here. And um, Beetle Bailey and Nancy, uh, Nancy and mm. Garfield and uh, Calvin and Hobbes and Farside and a strip called Bloom County. Um, and that that's all I wanted to do. And uh, as I and I started submitting to this, we had newspaper syndicates over there that you know get thousands of submissions a year, and they only choose one, one a year, mm. one or two a year, because that's how hard it was. And and uh, and I would start submitting when I was eight years old and I would ink these strips up and I did that every year until college. And by the end, I was getting handwritten rejection letters. <laughs> and, uh, and then by the time I got out of college, they were already calling for the death of newspapers and it's just been getting worse mm. ever since. So I, but that, that led, my love of comic strips led me to TV writing because I was always writing, but I was writing comics. And... Um, and it led me into acting too, which I which I also uh, studied for a while, because uh, I wanted my fr- in fifth grade. I they they did you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And I was like, well, I'm the only one who can play Linus. I've read every Linus line, <laughs> oh. I know, and I got it. I got Linus, and I was like, oh, this is acting. So it, it opened me up to other things. But I've always still wanted to be want to be. Uh, I'd love to just make my living from comic strips, and you can do that now on the web. But it's a different mindset and a different skill set. You really have to sell merchandise and you get hats and t-shirts mm. and i toy with the idea of figuring that stuff out and carmen and i talk about that from time to time mm-hmm. um but it, that's not i'm not interested in that i'm just interested in getting the strips out so i do the comic now for myself uh you know because having the internet make give it's just a f- more fun deadline 
because you know people are going to read it. Mm -hmm. If I was just drawing for myself self, I don't know if I would be, I don't know if the incentive would be there. So I'm still sort of doing it for myself because I know people are going to look at it, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I suppose as well, from an artist's perspective, if you start to explore money-making avenues, it, it feels like you're cheapening the brand a little yeah. bit. Yeah, a little bit. It's, I mean... But then, you know, what puts food on the table... Exactly. It's a balancing act between, you know, monetization of your heart and soul. Yeah. <laughs> but it, is it... Wow. That, it, you said it in the <laughs> darkest way possible, Andy. That's good. <laughs> but is it a bad thing to have, you know, one of your creations on someone's T-shirt... I mean, I think for the strip I do, it's my my strip doesn't. It has a few regular recurring characters, but they're mm. very they recur very irregularly. But a strip comic strip like Calvin and Hobbes, which was famous for the the cartoonist Bill Watterson, who created that strip, was famous for not merchandising that strip, and no one could understand it in America because America is all about making money. Mm. And he was like, if I see Calvin and Hobbes on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug then or or worse a greeting card then it just looks like they're shilling for those companies and then when you read the strip it doesn't it loses the magic that the strip has and he's right he mm. is right about that you know when peanuts did that peanuts had the most ridiculous uh advertising uh plans they were advertising met life which is an insurance company in america and so the, here's these five-year-old cartoon characters saying think about life insurance you know that's not that takes you right out of the strip but to charles schultz's credit he was the first that ever had that kind of expansive merchandising so he didn't know what he was doing he mm. was like well i want to make money he gave a lot to charity but he didn't realize like oh i it was too late by the time he he was too rich, <laughs> you know. He was not gonna he was not gonna turn that ship around, you know. Which is understandable. As a pioneer, when was that on U.S. television? When it 60, was sixties, sixty six, I think, was right. the first Christmas special. I mean, and that's know. still early days in terms of of cartoons of of that nature yeah. appearing on television. Yeah, um, definitely in prime time. Although the Flintstones might have been around then, right? In prime time, um, but. Uh, Definitely for a comic strip to yes. make it into prime time, that that must have been one of the firsts, because then it started. Then they started doing it with other strips to great failure. Like Doonesbury had their own prime time special, and uh, they didn't know. And this tells you the difference in mm. television then and now. That was in 1975, I think, and uh, they only got 20 million viewers. And so they never did another Doonesbury again. Now, 20 million viewers today would be, it would, it, 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 they, would, they would give them an open-ended contract. Mm. Um, but back then, that was considered because there was only three networks, you know, and there was no internet, there was no cable. It was too you know. small a piece of, of the pie uh, then. Yeah. But yeah. it just shows you how, I mean, there, there are parallels with the music industry. If you look at, when you look at how many uh, units you need to shift to get into the chart. It yeah. used to be, you know, you'd need to sell you know, millions in order to get into the top 20. And now it's it's minuscule. Yeah. Because of the way that people engage with the internet, it, it, it's also the way that we take stuff in. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, though, it, it gives complete freedom as well, which it right. sounds like you've embraced yes. from, from an artistic point of view. Yeah. You, you still have you know, fans and people who, who regularly um, visit. Mm-hmm your website yeah and that's a thing of beauty i love it mm. i love it the other thing of beauty is technology in terms of drawing 
I'm an okay drawer. Um, what I couldn't stand was the actual inking with the nibs. You know, I, I got okay at it as time went on. But when this, the, the, what's called the Wacom Cintiq, which is the, these tablets that you can draw on, these computer tablets that you draw directly onto the screen, mm-hmm. when these things came around and got perfected, that's when I went, all right, I'm going to go back into this whole hog because um, there's no ink spilling. There's no, it's controlled pen work that still looks like actual pen work. Um, like actual nibs and stuff that that we used to use back in the day, and uh, that was it. That combination of social media and the the tablet technology was what made me decide I have to do this mm. again while I, while I'm a you know mm-hmm. while this is happening right now. I'd like because I you know I buy comics constantly, and I don't buy superhero stuff. I never really got into uh, superhero comics. I buy a lot of newspaper comic strip collections and um, indie graphic novels and. Um, uh, a lot of that stuff, and I, as Carmen will attest to, and as we've said before, <laughs> like it's just it's endless. So, I want to now, you know, now that I, it's easier for me to contribute, then they people have to deal with me <laughs> and my stupid comics now because it's just so much easier, you know. And to, also to the, get it out there, and there must be a new generation of people who are not using nibs at all, don't even know what paper is. Mm. Yeah. The, no, the there is a whole generation. generation. Yeah, the mm. paperless generation. No nibs for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn the nibs. For for people who are listening to the podcast to be able to engage with your artwork, what are the website details? Oh, okay. Well, the com- the web comic is called A Fistful of Babies. And the website is a fistfulofbabies.com. And I'm also on Instagram at, at a fistful of babies. And I'm on Twitter at Rentoons, which is the first four letters of my last name, R-E-Y-N-T-O-O-N-S. That's on Twitter, at Rentoons. And then the Instagram and the website, yeah. As a cartoonist, is the ultimate dream, apart from producing stuff that you love and and being able to do it whilst keeping the bailiffs at bay and mm. the food on the table, is it to do something like Ghost World, where you have yes. something that, that's... that's Yes, you know that one. I love it. That's oh, so good. Love, Dan love, the, love the strip and love the, the film. Yeah. yeah. And do you, are you keep up with Dan Klaus? Do you, have you read not uh, a, not Patience? A, no. I, Patience I, is his latest. It's, it's amazing. Carmen right. got about six pages in and then put it down. But... <laughs> I think you'll love it, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll love it if you love Ghost World. Uh, Ghost World's um, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, no, he's incredible, Dan Klaus. Yeah. Whatever happened to Thora Birch? That's a... Uh, yeah. Oh, it's sad, isn't it? it? I don't know. That's it's, a great question. I mean, in that film, you've got Scarlett Johansson, yeah. who, when I saw the film, thought, oh, aesthetically pleasing, bit wooden. Yeah. For a birch, yeah, that's a career to be reckoned with. Yes, totally the opposite. And I think I think the media felt that way too mm. about her, and then she's just disappeared. Yeah, I don't know. It's a shame. I'm going to Google her the second we're Indeed. done here, actually, because that's a <laughs> yes. great that's a yeah. great question. Sounds like a documentary. Whatever happened to Thora Birch? I mean, somebody who talks like this. Thora Birch was a huge Hollywood star. Then it all ended. <laughs> I have no idea why I talk like this, but it seems to work well for a documentary. That's all good. Talk. Yeah, it's true. When you were working in the financial world, mm-hmm. in banking, 
What was your job there? Well, just to be clear, I wasn't an investment banker because I think when people hear banking, they think I was mm. like in this high class. Buy, sell. Very, <laughs> yeah, like I'm getting paid all this money. But I started in a bank in Virginia. And then when I moved to New York, I was temping for Goldman Sachs. So I wasn't actually a banker, but I did with John work uh, with bankers mm. on their like presentations and all that stuff. But um but you know it's it's funny I tried so hard to fit into the regular world of office and finance and cubicles and and all that stuff and it never really I never found a place and then I worked in insurance for a while and I never really found anything that I liked and of course now I look back and I'm like thank god because then mm. I wouldn't be doing what I do. But um but it was all just, you know, to pay the rent and stuff. It was never anything I loved. When you were starting in comedy, did you have to do, I believe it's called barking. Yes, barking. Yes. Did, yeah. you, did you do that? Or flyering. Yeah, you right. stand outside and uh, you hand out flyers. And, you know, uh, you have to because that's how you get spots, you mm. know. Uh, when I was doing it, I don't think they fly or bark so much now. But um, when I was doing it, it was you could bring people. So I would do a lot of shows where you'd get five minutes if you brought three people. Right. And three is pretty easy to get. There were shows where you had to bring 10 people, but then you'd get 10 minutes. And that was more stressful than getting up there to do stand-up. You'd be like, I have four people in the audience. Are they still going to let me go up? Mm. So that was just nerve-wracking. And um, but and then when I, got, when I ran out of friends or when I got <laughs> sick of doing that, I would go back to the barking. And right. I would just stand out there and... And flyer. And how long would you have to do that for if, on a given day? It depends. Like some places, they'd make you do it for an hour. Some, they would make you do it for two if you were doing two shows. Right. Um, but usually an hour before. And one time we got busted because a friend of mine and I, it was cold and rainy. And we went to oh. inside to like McDonald's or something. <laughs> and the, the booker just walked right in. That's a big no-no. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> and they were like, get out there. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, a lot of now, a lot, a lot of comedy clubs hire street teams, like professional flyering people. Right. So I think the comics who do it now have it a little easier. And a lot of there are a lot of shows now that... Uh, that are there's in a random bar in the back room and stuff. And we had some of those, but now there's just comedy everywhere because there's a lot more comedians and everything. So, so I don't think it's, uh, I don't think they do that as much. Do you ever do the multiple venues in a night approach? Yeah. Caroline's one minute and, yes. you know, another place. And what's the most that you've done in, in one night? The most I've done, I think, was seven or eight. Good wow. night. But the, it, it all depends on location. Like, right. Um, like now I, I usually do maybe three or four a night. Three is my favorite because four after four, you're just like, I'm just, I don't mm. know if I'm actually learning something or repeating jokes I already know work or whatever. So three for me is like a perfect night. Um, but uh, there, there used to be clubs that were so close to each other that you could literally go back and forth. Or one club had an upstairs and a downstairs. And so I would get five done right there. Goodness. Um, and a lot of these places didn't pay, but it, it doesn't matter, you know, like uh, especially when they don't pay. You're like, I want to get up as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the paying ones are great, too. But, you know, it, it was all about just getting that new material up there. And uh, and now I, I do a couple of rooms where I just do new material. So I just kind of spread it out more. And I'm gone a lot now. I'm at the airport. I'm flying all the time and I'm gone. So uh, 
Yeah, but at a certain point, uh, yeah, if you get up five, six, seven times a night, just to, for especially at the beginning, I think you that's how you really find your voice mm. and your confidence and stuff, and um, it, it's important. What a perfect litmus test it is for material. You know, you're yeah. in, in front of different sets of strangers experiencing different levels of inebriation yeah. throughout the evening. <laughs> Presumably, you know, one in the morning audiences can be different than, yeah. you know, 8 p.m. And especially back then, like, doing a show uh, and and I, was, I wasn't as... At uh, the beginning, I was very scared to try new stuff. Like, if something worked, I would do that joke for a long time. Whereas mm. now I don't care... If nobody laugh, I mean, of course, we all want everyone to laugh, but I'm like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to make this work my way. You know, you build confidence. So you don't you don't take their la- their lack of laughter as personally. But at the beginning, you could you know, I could do a show, do seven minutes that killed feel like a star in year one and then go to another room and none of it worked and then feel like what happened? I did the same material, you know. So, but now I think it's just all about just always throwing new stuff in and keeping it fresh for me. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't want to grow out of love with your own material. Yeah. Otherwise it feels like you're a part of a conveyor belt of your own yes. creation. Yes. The one thing that I loved about your one hour show in Edinburgh is that it was an hour long show. Whereas for a lot of comedians that I saw... And I'm I'm going to be cruel here. Mm. Often it'll be half an hour of of material that they've carefully honed, and over reliance on crowd work and riffing. Mm. Which in Edinburgh and for a new performer that for us as as a audience members seemed a bit lazy. Mm. And yours is just it was yeah the likability factor, but it was just it was an hour of entertainment, which at Edinburgh Thanks. is is not necessarily a guarantee often it'd be half an hour of entertainment in an hour long show well, i don't know how because i know a lot of people who do that show every year which mm. is impressive because i'm like i'm not ready to do that again you know so the fact that they're even doing it every year i'm like well of course i'm there because i thought about that because people told me that i'm like well of course there's riffing and stuff because mm. You've only had a year to write this. Like how true. How do you come up with all that stuff, you know? Um yeah, but I I heard that that was true. Well, also in the states, uh headlining is 45 minutes to an hour, whereas here I think it's uh, like 20 minutes, everybody gets 20 minutes. Mm. So yeah, to do an hour is just like a regular thing out there. And how do you like Brits as an audience? Z I think they're great. I think they're uh, they appreciate the darker, sketchier stuff that uh, we do back home as well, and uh, I love that. Um, and I love coming. I mean, I come back every year because I love it. Where can people find out about the glories of your good self? Come well. The main reason I'm out here, besides like all the shows I'm doing, but I'm doing an hour at the Bill Murray, which is at the Angel Comedy Club on May second at six forty-five. So I would love for everyone all of your listeners and i listed everything on carmenlynch.com but on twitter i'm at lynch carmen and on instagram i'm at lynch comic um but yeah it's all there on on carmenlynch.com all those shows for the uk and final question to come in. 
what is the meaning of life? No, 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 no. no. Um, 40, 42 is the British uh, answer. Yes, that, right? this is true. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> I saw the short film that Chloe Savini directed mm-hmm. of Your Good Self. How accurate of a portrayal is that for an average night in which you're out and about <laughs> soaking in the the, the 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 city sights and sounds. I would never wear uh, I never wear Mew Mew outfits. <laughs> Those are so expensive, as John knows. Yeah, I got to keep a couple of things. Yeah, I had the, to try it on. It was so expensive. And the price was insane. Mm. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that's not part of my regular life, unfortunately. But and a lot of the the looking in the mirror like that. Yeah, it didn't seem <laughs> so, very so you. I mean, it's yeah, a, it's beautifully filmed. It's a fashion film, so it's mm. really you know it's a portrayal of of stand up, but it's also a portrayal of of fashion and Mew Mew who produced the movie. Mm. So um so yeah, it's. A, I hope more people see that and think like Andy does that uh, that is actually how your life is. Yes, it's a slice of of Carmen's life. A slice that's, of just staring into my my mirror image with a really expensive outfit on. Yes, it's so funny. With all respect due due to <laughs> Chloe, I saw a clip in which she was extolling the virtues of your good self and the reason why she wanted to feature you in her in a short film all admirable lovely things have you seen this yes, this interview footage about, yeah. it's, it's really very, really nice. really lovely yeah. and i saw that interview that she did before i saw the the actual film mm. and oh i hate to say this i, I was a little bit disappointed because <laughs> I, I thought she got you uh-huh. yeah this is an actress that was in kids and it was quite an edgy <laughs> yeah. edgy concern yeah. yeah you know she was involved with vince gallo yeah. she had to be in was it brown bunny yeah. she was in brown bunny oh my yeah. word right. and, and, and me, brown bunny was in her yes there's <laughs> damn you got there before i did i was, I was so thinking the it. brown bunny <laughs> <laughs> so you would think we're coming from that very very kind of edgy world mm. and yeah. from edgy films and and seemingly getting you that a bit of, of truth would seep its way into the film. And again, it's beautifully filmed, yeah, but yeah. it didn't yeah. seem very yeah. you, even yeah. though I'd only met you briefly after one of your shows, you get an idea for what a person is like. Yeah. And and this just seemed to be a whole different kind of person. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Mm. Yeah. And I realise yeah. it need not be exactly about you. You're playing a role. Yeah. Right. But I, I was hoping it was going to be a bit, like edgier kind of yeah but but also maybe if you will i've been on the road i know what it's like you know often you're kind of sprawled out watching bad television or or searching for food that doesn't suck right rather than i'm having a moment in which my mortality is being questioned oh here i am in this club those people are so young (laughs) i was once young i better stare at myself in the mirror just to remind myself (laughs) of nature (laughs) taking its toll on me that's what i love about it though because it is so not what is real Hmm. Maybe that's why she wanted to, I can't speak for her, yeah. but maybe that's why she wanted to do it because she's so used to coming at things mm-hmm. from from gritty reality. This is sort of like a weird heightened truth, maybe. A parallel universe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I liked that the cool thing was too is that she and I went over my jokes and together we picked, she was like, what jokes would you be interested in sharing to the world with this? And then she kind of picked the ones she liked. And she did pick the kind of the darker ones about plan B and mm. all that stuff. So it, that was kind of cool that at least that part of it was dark. But yeah, but the 
skirts and all that. Yeah, in fact, all your stand-up, I think, in that short is it's pretty totally dark. real. Yeah. Like, based yeah. from reality. Yeah. Though. I mean, she knows about Plan B because of me. <laughs> so that, that, came, that came from that a true. That totally came from a true. Yeah, yeah, and, and purchase. Um, so, uh, so that that was the gritty truth was your was your stand up, and yeah. then she everything around it was her was the, her heightened glitzy take. Yeah, mm. it was filmed in Portland. Is that Portland, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, maybe Portland in her mind, brought out the, the inner uh, vacuousness that you yeah. never really seem to have at all. Yeah. But, I mean, it, was, it, it is a film. It's not a, a, a documentary. It's no. not so... No, no, yeah. no, no. And it's beautifully shot. But I Chloe like did a lovely people job. people might think it's a documentary, like yes. you were saying. Yeah, I yeah. It's, well, like, it's, you know, I, I love the idea of, of being able to, you know, kind of embrace the mundane and, and yeah. to, to get a slice of life of what it's like to be in that very solitary world in between shows. Yeah. You know, there's no glamour. You you have yourself for company. A, a little bit of that made it into the film, but not as much as Yeah, the, the deli like. scene is a little like that when the guys are calling you Stretch. Yeah. They're calling you yeah. nicknames from the 40s. Yeah. Uh, for stretch. being tall. Hey, Stretch. <laughs> Come on, Sticks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sticks. That's, yeah. He tells you that too. Both, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you a knuckle sandwich if you don't change your ways there, you little wiseacre. Apologies once again, not only for that dodgy 1940s gangster accent, but also for disturbing this bodacious banter. Now we find out what's happening with our very own Slutty Sue. Let's see what Slutty Sue is doing in her house. In her house. Slutty Sue is doing in her house. In her house. Let's see what Slutty Sue is doing in her house. In her house. Are you done with those mugs? To a mere pedestrian or uninitiated local, Penge may appear to be an unremarkable suburb of London. Neither city nor country neither posh nor destitute. But in this quiet enclave in the southeastern quarter of our nation's capital is an Art Deco semi-detached house owned and occupied by a North American transplant to Blighty named Slutty Sue. She likes to clean. I popped into Slutty Sue's pristine abode and asked, Slutty Sue, what have you been up to? It's spring cleaning time, and my vicar asked me to give him a hand at his church because his apse has got all dirty. But when we started, I told him it would be best to work from the outside in because the brass on his door was all tarnished from not being given a seeing to all winter. So this week, Dookie, I've been mostly polishing my vicar's rusty knob. What is it with all the knob jokes? One thing just dawned on me. 
John Hastings sat on this very sofa and we discussed his experience of being six foot four, yet having been a premature baby, being a, a, mm, a preemie. Yeah. And, uh, and how people didn't believe him. And this, for reasons I have no idea, is a really tenuous link to your, your good self being a sco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As I ran the houses to get the oh, sco, yeah. to get the sconess in there. How <laughs> intensely was your life affected by that condition? Well, I clearly had no idea that I was going to have scoliosis because in my head, I just pictured, you know, people were hunched over have hmm. scoliosis. So when, when I was diagnosed with it in school, I was like, what? And then on top of that, when they're like, you need to wear a brace every day and every night at school, that really affected me because that, that was not something I shared with anybody. So that was, you know, like a deep, dark, in my head, it was like a deep, dark secret. And hmm. I will... Uh, be uh, made fun of or whatever so it was I was obsessed with not letting anyone know about it so that was a big yeah that was a huge and I think in a way that's what really brought me to stand up because I did shut myself down for so long that when I discovered speaking in public I'm like this feels amazing so I don't know if that would have happened if I had just kind of not gone that way a means of venting yeah past concerns your things which definitely kind of shaped you during uh you know your formative years it must have been really really tricky and did you the the brace is this something that you were able to wear without other people knowing or um i wore like heavy sweaters and loose shirts and stuff like that but Mm. if you bumped into me you definitely would feel it right yeah like if you some people tapped me on the back and i had no idea they were behind me until they were like boom (laughs) yeah but unless people did that, they might not have known. They just thought you had a, a penchant for baggy jumpers. For baggy clothes. Mm. Or I remember certain times I would walk uh, in the back and so I wouldn't have anyone behind me. I would always sit in the back of the class, like stuff like that. Yeah, all the time. Oh, goodness. And, and I, I did a one-person show about it because it was just, it, for me, it was so tragic. But when I hear... When I talked about it in this show, it, people would laugh and I get it. You know, like I would drop things on the floor and just let them be on the floor because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not picking that up. I can't. Yeah. People think, oh, what a diva. <laughs> drop stuff, drop stuff. And uh, yeah. suddenly it's <laughs> Mariah Carey's in the house. Yeah, they're like, I'll take that brand new pen. <laughs> Is that a Parker pen? Don't mind if I do. Listen, guys, thanks so much for coming here to the Dukey Radio Show studios. I'm clearly aware that Tempest is fugitive, and Lynch, you've got a gig to do. Oh, it's been awesome. Oh, thank you. You're amazing at this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, that is indeed your lot. Carmen Lynch and John Reynolds were. Fab guests, great company. I could have chatted with them all day, all night, all week, all month, all year, decades even. I might be labouring this point a little bit. In fact, I better stop now or it might seem a little bit stalkery. Is that a word? Well, it is now. You've been listening to an interview with Carmen Lynch and John Reynolds. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. Until next time, may the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Facebook. Click on your map.
www.facebook.com forward slash the dukey radio show the dukey radio show the dukey radio show 